Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Statues are falling, calls for the decolonisation of history are growing and those who were once seen as British heroes are being painted as villains. My name is Stephen Edgington and in this series I'm going to be exploring four controversial figures from our past, all of whom have statues which are under pressure to be taken down. Are these men truly good or evil? Can we judge them by the standards of today? And should we be attempting to rewrite our history at all? How do you feel about the proposal to take the statue down? Oh, I'll actually be here and I'll fight them off! To answer these questions, I'm going to be joined by an historian each week, where I will be putting the case against each figure from history. Who better to start with than Winston Churchill? Today is victory in Europe day. God save the king. To many... Churchill is the man who saved not only Britain, but the world from Nazi tyranny. To some, Churchill represents the evils of the British Empire. The wartime Prime Minister's statue in Parliament Square was even tarred with the words racist after the BLM protests in 2020. To discuss the criticisms of Churchill, I am joined by his biographer, Andrew Roberts, in History Defended. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So I'm going to be presenting the case of the prosecution against Winston Churchill. I'm going to go through several character flaws and other traits that he may have that were negative or criticised today. So let's start with the core accusation against Churchill that was written on his statue that he was a racist. So I've got some quotes here I'm going to read out that obviously people quote all the time to say, look, Churchill had these awful views on race. In 1937, he said, I do not admit, for instance, that the great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wide race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. He also talked about, I hate Indians, they are beastly people with a beastly religion. He referred to Palestinians as barbaric hordes who ate little but camel dung. And finally, he said, I think we shall have to take the Chinese in hand and regulate them. The Aryan stock is bound to triumph. Was Churchill a racist? No, he wasn't. Some of the quotes that you've given are completely invented, such as the one about eating camel dung. Others you fail to put in any kind of context whatsoever. Others are just made up by his enemies. Almost all of the ones to do with India come from one person a political enemy of his, Leo Amory. I'm not saying he didn't say them, he might well have said something like them. But the fact that he said things that were derogatory to people of other races does not make him somebody who wants bad things to happen to people of other races, which I think is what a racist is. Just to say that he thinks that white people were superior to non-whites 
is obvious, owing to the fact that he was born in 1874 whilst Charles Darwin was still alive. It was the scientific belief that there were a hierarchy of races. Now we today know that that's obscene and uh, absurd, but in those days it was what was considered scientifically accurate. Some of your other quotations, the one, for example, about the Native Americans, that really is exactly what people thought about historical development, that the more advanced, the more weaponized group was going to win wars. By the way, I don't think that there are very many military historians today who think anything else. So no, if you treat Churchill as a man of his time and also appreciate the things that he did for non-white people throughout his life and his belief in the British Empire, the fact that he put his life on the line endlessly to defend non-white people on the northwest frontier, for example, and in the Sudanese campaign where he took part in the abolition of slavery, for example. Actually, overall, he was a tremendously good thing for non-whites, and uh, he wouldn't have been if he was a racist. If we take the word racist and look at the definition, I mean, there's so many definitions of it, but the sort of literal definition of believing that one race is superior to another, did he believe that or do you not even concede that? Well, of course, I've just said. Of course he did. That's what Charles Darwin and... But does uh, that not make him a racist is what I'm trying to say? No, I don't believe so. I think if you just believe something that's scientifically believed at the time, you can't use a modern pejorative term. Otherwise, all history becomes completely meaningless. You might as well ask why Oliver Cromwell didn't believe in socialised medicine. Another accusation against Churchill is that he supported eugenics. I think there's some evidence of this. So can you talk about whether that's true or, whether, again, whether there's more context? Well, no, it's true. He was a eugenicist, but a completely different one from the kind of Nazi eugenicists that actually wanted to sort of kill people on the basis of their disabilities and so on. He wasn't in favour of that at all. It was actually a quite left-wing concept, eugenics, at the time that he, of course, as a member of the Liberal Party, believed in it. Uh, people like the Webbs, H.G. Wells, sort of progressivists. And what they did believe in, basically, was sterilising what they called idiots, people who had mental problems, which, of course, is completely repulsive to modern ears. But for some reason, the progressive left latched onto it, and Winston Churchill attended one conference and then after that when he actually got into a position of power as Home Secretary he didn't advance any of those things to the point that they ever got onto the statute book. Let's move on to another accusation against Winston Churchill that people who read The Guardian would like to bring up his use of excessive force and I think that there are maybe there are some legitimate points that they have so let's take I don't want to take you through a no, couple of cases. No there aren't okay, as, well, as let, you will discover in Okay a second. well fantastic please, <laughs> please debunk these. Okay so let's talk about Churchill's alleged support of using poison gas that's another that's another accusation against him. So Churchill was supposedly supporting the use of tear gas against the Kurds and Afghans and in World War I, he apparently supported the use of mustard gas against Ottoman soldiers. So I want to quote a quote they always bring up. If you go on Twitter and type in Churchill was a racist or something, they will always use this quote um, from Winston Churchill. He said, I do not understand this squeamishness about the use of gas. I am strongly in favour of using poisoned gas against uncivilised tribes. Now, that's where they usually end the quote. I'm going to finish the quote for the full context. He then says, the moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. It is not necessary to use only the most deadly gases. Gases can be used which cause great inconvenience and would spread a lively terror and yet would leave no serious permanent effects on those affected. So can you talk about his support, alleged support for gas? 
well, as he called it in that same document, a different area of the same document, lacrimotary gas, tear gas, the same gas that our policemen will use in a riot that gets completely out of control in Trafalgar Square. So I can't see why this makes him into some kind of a mass murderer. It's completely ridiculous, frankly. Tear gas is an entirely different kind of gas than the chlorine gas or mustard gas that is used in warfare. And the only time that he supported, you mentioned the Turkish soldiers, the only time that he supported using it was in war. And if you remember rightly, the Germans had used mustard gas on the Western Front from the Battle of Cambrai onwards. We responded with it. Poison gas was used in the First World War by both sides. And so why Winston Churchill should be specifically targeted by the left today as being a monster for having advocated its use in wartime is quite beyond me. One of the most fascinating, and I would say sort of not particularly interesting footnotes of history that the left talk about is Tony Pandy. This is John McDonnell. When he was asked, is Churchill a hero or villain? He says, villain, Tony Pandy. So can you explain the events of what happened in that Welsh village in 1910 and why there is controversy over Winston Churchill? There's controversy because in Tonipandi, during a minor strike, Churchill is accused of having sent in troops with bayonets and deaths occurred and so on. It's a total myth. Nobody died at Tonipandi. There were not bayonets. The actual policemen, not soldiers, went in with rolled up Macintoshes. So it's one of these classic moments that has been picked up by the left, turned into a great cause célèbre. But when you actually look at the facts behind it, it's a total chimera. Now we're going to move on to the black and tans. And you say there's no use of excessive force, but surely in Ireland, so Churchill becomes Secretary of State for War in 1919. And just a few weeks, I think, or a couple of months after his appointment, the Irish Civil War is sparked and the IRA basically go around and causing, causing terror in Ireland. And, you know, just like uh, in more recent in the Troubles, the IRA were, were killing people and burning things and everything else. So what does the British government do? Churchill at the time, he decides to send in a sort of paramilitary group called the Black and Tans. And they use extreme excessive force. They, they go around burning cork. And Churchill is accused of continuing using the Black and Tans, even when he's told, you know, these guys are using excessive force and we shouldn't be going in so hard in Ireland. And even when he's told that people are supporting the IRA because of this excessive force from the Unionists. So surely this is an example where Churchill got it wrong. Yes, you're right. And that's it. <laughs> we, they can score one point on Churchill there. No, it's true. I mean, yeah. and, and it was he thought that you could fight terrorism with terrorism. Yeah. And of course you can't. And what it did was to, as you say, it was to build up a uh, huge amount of resentment amongst ordinary Irish people and actually help the nationalist cause rather than crushing it. He got that completely wrong, yeah. Let's move on to, I would say, the biggest accusations against Churchill in terms of events and that is the famine in India in 1942 and beyond. To give people a bit of context, there was a cyclone in Bengal in, in India, and the Japanese had invaded Burma, which was a major source of rice for people in India at the time, so obviously that was cut off. India was facing a series of problems. And, and the cyclone, it's very important to remember, took out the roads and the railways, along which, under normal circumstances, supplies would have come into Bengal. And the Indian government at the time were surprised, they were shocked, they were accused of being incompetent, and they basically failed to handle this disaster, and it caused the deaths of people estimate 
three million. That's the, the statistics that I've seen. So, but the accusation against Churchill isn't necessarily that he started the famine, although I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> isn't pretty? It's pretty clear that he didn't. No, but no, the cyclones. Ac- you know, even Winston Churchill can't arrange a cyclone. Exactly, but he is accused of not helping the Indians enough once the famine is known about, and he's accused of restricting exports of wheat and other products to India at the time, and the War Cabinet vetoing at various different points. Uh, sending food to India to help the people who were starving. So that's the accusation against Churchill. Yeah, completely unfair again. First of all, it was the local government in Bengal, based in Calcutta. Then after that, of course, the local government in India, based in Delhi, that under normal circumstances dealt with this. The next thing that uh, one must remember is that the Japanese had been shelling cities in eastern India their submarines were operating in the Bay of Bengal. If you send ships in to bring in rice, they're going to get sunk. And the next point is, of course, that he wrote increasingly desperate letters to people like the Prime Minister of Australia, the Prime Minister of Canada, the Prime Minister of New Zealand and President Roosevelt, asking them, once the naval situation was dealt with, to send rice there. So... This idea that he was deliberately trying to massacre huge numbers of Indians is simply factually incorrect. Now, it's true that on occasion he made racist remarks. He would talk about the Indians breeding like rabbits, for example, which were sometimes, I think, said, frankly, I think they were said in order to annoy and infuriate Leo Amory. But Winston Churchill did not mean these things that he uh, said when under sometimes extreme attack from the Quit India movement, the Hindu movement that wanted the British to leave and was effectively therefore helping the Japanese in as far as the, what it was doing to the Indian war effort. He did lose his temper and he did say some pretty you know, monstrous things. You've got to judge him about what he actually did rather than what he said. And his deeds in this case are much more important than his words. There is an example of Churchill and his war cabinet vetoing a Canadian proposal of sending 100,000 tonnes of wheat or rice, I forget which, um, to, to India at the time. But he did say that Australia should try and provide instead. But why did they veto it at the time? Because they needed the food to go to the Anglo-Indian army fighting on the border of Burma. If you remember rightly, when the Japanese broke into and took the Philippines, they managed to kill 17% of the population of the Philippines. If they had done the same thing in India, it would have left the deaths of something like 50 million people. We were fighting over the tennis court at Kohima and in the provinces next to Assam. We were the 14th Army, mainly Indian, of course, but British-led, was fighting tooth and nail to keep the Japanese out of India. They needed their supplies, they needed their food. And frankly, there are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. For us to sit back 75 years later in our our comfortable life of peace and criticise the people who took those decisions, I think is unhistorical. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal, We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. 
all from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. Let's talk about Gallipoli. Now, this is something that Churchill had hanging over him his whole life, and his political career was almost wrecked by this utterly disastrous military campaign. Is this the one event in which Churchill does feel a huge amount of regret and really does think about this a lot? Because later on in his life, he talks about this in World War II when they're planning uh, Operation Overlord to invade northern France. You know, he's very reluctant because he's worried about another bloodbath like Gallipoli. And so can you give people a bit of context around what happened at Gallipoli, how Churchill was involved and how this affected him throughout his life? Yes, in 1915, once it became clear that the trenches had stretched from the English Channel all the way to Switzerland on the Western Front, Churchill hoped to open a second front by an attack through the Dardanelles, the Straits of the Dardanelles, that separate Europe from Asia. And he hoped to get the um, squadron of the Royal Navy, and indeed the French Navy, through into the Sea of Marmara and beyond into the Black Sea and thereby take Turkey out of the war by threatening to bomb Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. It was a brilliant, brilliant idea if it had come off. But in the attempt on the 18th of March 1915 to get through the Straits, the Allies lost six ships. Instead of calling the whole thing off and forgetting about it, what Churchill persuaded the war cabinet to do was to land large numbers of troops on the Gallipoli Peninsula to the west of the Dardanelles. They fought a campaign there from the 25th of April onwards until finally it was evacuated in January 1916, which killed or wounded 147,000 Allied soldiers. And it was therefore, as, a, as you say, a catastrophe. Churchill was blamed for it ever since. He had people shouting him down even into the 1930s. People would shout at his political meetings, what about the Dardanelles? And mistakes were made, clearly. However, he learned from them. One of the great things about Winston Churchill was that he was capable of learning from his mistakes, from all of them, actually. And what he learned from the Dardanelles was that you don't overrule the chiefs of staff. In the Second World War, although he came close to doing it, each time his memories of the Dardanelles meant that he never overruled the chiefs of staff once. And so, yes, you know, of course he can be criticised and was criticised viciously and violently at the time. And it would have destroyed the career of many a, a lesser person. And certainly today, anything like that would destroy a political career forever. But people were willing to, to give him another chance. One accusation that I didn't know about the Dardanelles and the Gallipoli campaign until recently, and this is from an Australian friend of mine, is that in Australia and New Zealand, there is an idea that Churchill sent in people from those commonwealths before the British soldiers in Gallipoli and in the Dardanelles. And there is an accusation against Churchill that he basically valued the British lives more or greater than the lives of Australian and uh, New Zealand troops. 
Is there any truth in that? No, it's completely ridiculous. And he was first Lord of the Admiralty. He wasn't... Uh, people who decided this were the soldiers on the spot, Sir Ian Hamilton, who hasn't been accused of anything so disgraceful, or the Minister of War, uh, Secretary for War, who was Lord Kitchener. This is the trouble. Things are blamed on Churchill. And by the way, I don't think it happened. I think that the, uh, there are perfectly good reasons why the people who are closer to the fighting get there first. Where you were staged on from Cairo and Lemnos and the rest is a hugely complicated strategic thing. It's not down to Winston Churchill. I mean, he's been accused of sinking the Lusitania. He's been accused of all sorts of things. Being a non-smoker, I saw the other day. And the fact is that people love, especially on the internet, especially in cyberspace, love blaming Churchill for things that uh, he simply was not guilty of. As I say, he got lots of things wrong, but things like that just no. There's so many accusations against Churchill. We've just gone through, I would say, even 1% of the accusations against him in his lifetime. There's been so many words written about him and so many quotes attributed to him, but it's difficult to understand what's true, what's hearsay, what comes from his enemies. Actually, it's really very simple. In fact, is you just need to get a book by a man called Richard Langworth called Churchill in His Own Words. And he has pages and pages on things that Churchill is supposed to have said but never did. And also, of course, hundreds of pages on things that Churchill actually genuinely did say. So if you want to know about Churchill, then the thing to do is to get Richard's book. What is the most legitimate criticism of Churchill as a man? What were his genuinely biggest flaws? Oh, well, he got things wrong. I, I, as I mentioned, you know, of course he did. You said, oh, well, the abdication crisis doesn't matter. Well, it, it jolly well did matter in 1936. The gold standard, going back onto the gold standard at the wrong level at the wrong time in 1925, was a, a serious flaw and was, was very bad economically. Of course, you know, now we know that it was monstrous not to have given women the vote in the early 20th century. You know, they should have had it long before then. But that was also something that, that Winston Churchill and his liberal colleagues, we've got to remember it was the Liberal Party at the time that, that was denying them, uh, them the vote. So there are plenty of things that Churchill got wrong. The Black and Tans we mentioned earlier as well. But frankly, compared to the survival of freedom, I don't think any of them matter anything like so much as that. What do you think about the idea that as veterans from World War II die, as the sort of memory of that war becomes more distant to people, you know, people growing up today may even not have grandparents who were fighting in the war. I mean, my grandparents were very young in that war, so they can barely remember very many details of it. As we go further away from the war, as we go further away from Churchill's life, are people's attitudes towards the man going to change? Are people going to take a more objective view of him? I mean, he was revered as a hero, as an icon, as you know, who couldn't be really touched after the war by some. You know, obviously, some still to criticise him. So, do you think we are going to change our attitudes towards Churchill? No, I think that actually we've got the objective view of him now, partly because we do have a few of the veterans still around who are able to remind the uh, present generation what it was like listening to Winston Churchill's speeches. You know, we've got the testimony of Anne Frank saying how emotionally powerful it was for her to hear Winston Churchill over the radio. And of course, she was risking her life to listen to him over the radio. The big problem, I think, is whether or not he's still taught in our schools. You know, there was an appalling survey quite recently of British uh, school children, thousands of them, in which uh, 20% of them thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character like Eleanor Rigby or Sherlock Holmes. Now, if we don't teach him, then yes, of course, he's going to slip away into history and be libeled in the way that, that you've mentioned. But if we stay objective, if we go back to the evidence, read the facts, read the books, 
watch the um, some of them very good uh, TV shows and, and movies and so on, and do listen to the veterans whilst they're still with us, then I think we will have a properly rounded view of this totally extraordinary and remarkable man. Can you give people the other side of Winston Churchill? I've gone through all these awful things that allegedly happened in his life, but why? what did Churchill do that was, that was good, that was positive? I, I genuinely think the very fact that we're able to discuss this at all, the very fact that we live in an open society, a free society, one that can hear these libels and lies about Churchill and depend on free and open inquiry and evidence to dispel them, I hope dispel them anyhow, is down to Winston Churchill. He spotted the danger that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis posed to world civilization. And he was just about the only person who did. For years, he spoke in the wilderness, warning this country, warning the world as well, warning America, that it needed to rearm and to be ready for the onslaught that Adolf Hitler was going one day to unleash on the West. And nobody listened to him. And then finally, once it had been unleashed, and once we'd already been fighting for uh, months, we turned to Winston Churchill and he became Prime Minister. And it was therefore very much down to him that the strategy was created, especially once the Americans came into the war, that ultimately was to uh, win that conflict. He just didn't do it before the Second World War, he'd also done much the same thing before the First World War, warning about Prussian militarism and the dangers that Wilhelmine Germany posed to the balance of power in Europe. And after the Second World War, he also was the first person in his great Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri in March 1946 to warn the threat that Soviet communism posed to Eastern Europe. To have got these three major threats to peace, civilization, and democracy right in the 20th century is frankly so much more important with, I'm afraid, anything that you've mentioned so far, except perhaps the Bengal famine, which, as you say, led to three million people, but which he was not responsible for and which he tried to alleviate. History Defended is a Telegraph original podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow or subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Find out more and listen at telegraph.co.uk slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.